1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, and always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. I'm going to say something that some people find controversial, but I pray you would see, if you've been following Jesus, hearing his words, this just makes sense, especially in our day. Here it is. The church is the most important group of people on the planet. The church is the most important group of people on the planet. Now you might say, well you say that because you're a pastor and that's your job and you lead one of these local chapters of such an organisation. That you could say, well Russ, if you were a John Deere salesman, you would say John Deere is the most important organisation on the planet. I mean, it hasn't merged with any other company over the years. It is still John Deere, always has been, except for way back when, you know, with... uh, um, Anyway. But no, the church is the most important. You may say, well, surely schools and education systems are very important. You may say sporting teams or the Olympics really glue our world together at moments of crisis that we need. But no, the reason I say that, as controversial as it might be, it's not a statement to fill our egos, but to humble us, to humble our hearts, especially when we approach church. Why is the church the most important organisation on the planet? Because it is the only organisation that God has come to rescue, redeem, regather, reform for eternity. It is the only group of people that he has designed and built and blessed himself in Christ. It's the only group of people that God promises to eternally bless. It's the only group of people that will still exist after the last day as known as the church. 
I cannot guarantee you if John Deere will still exist. I cannot guarantee you if we'll still have a teaching institution that still exists by whatever name, brand. I can't guarantee you that Melbourne Storm will still exist. But I can guarantee you, having investigated these things, that the one group of people that are going to exist forever is the church. The church is blood-bought and has hope forever. Which means, friends, as we read this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, the church matters now more than ever, especially in a pandemic, especially since the last day is coming, especially because Jesus loves the church and he loves her unity and he loves the way he loves, he wants us to love too. So we finish First Thessalonians today, which has been a series that has been getting us ready for Christ's return. It's, it's a series getting the whole church ready for Christ's return, not just individuals who will be sucked up to glory on the last day, but a group of people that will be gathered to God on the last day, gathered to Christ himself, which means as we finish in our series, What we saw there was not just a list of imperatives, which it is, it's a list of imperatives for the church to live out. It is a really a shape. It's a person. It's to be like Christ. It's a culture where we'll see today three things. You'll see on your service sheet and that outline there. It's a culture where her leadership, the church's leadership, is one of love. A culture where the church is ministering to one another and a culture where we have genuine joy. This is reforming church culture. 101, as God outlines in his word. And it starts with, well, when the church is in the media, where do the accusations start? Where do the attacks start? Or perhaps when a church is going through change or reforming its culture, where does the heat Really fine. Where is the point of friction with her leadership? It starts with leadership is love. A leadership of love is the shape of the church. That's where it starts. And verse 12, can I just say, friends, here is where it gets awkward. It gets awkward for me. I find teaching on verses like this awkward. Why? Let me be honest. It's talking about me. So I find preaching about leadership and the way that we relate to leaders awkward and weird because I feel like I'm, there's always a danger of leaders giving a kind of a, a shameless or a shameful plug about themselves. But this is not actually about me. This is about how we actually treat one another. And you'll see it's actually how we treat Jesus. In verse 12, we saw, we ask you brothers or brothers and sisters to respect those who labour among you. See, this respect, respecting leadership is something that ought to be part of a healthy church. Respecting people who labour among you. Notice the word labour, it's this work. When I was growing up, I grew up in a Christian family, I grew up in a church. I also grew up in a farming family. You may be aware of that, I'm not sure. But when I went to church, when I saw the minister of our church, I assumed that's all he did for a job. That he, he happened to like golf, you know, the joke of ministers in golf, that that's all they do is play golf, or that's their hobby. I don't like golf. 
Um, I'm a kind of a big ball kind of sport person. That's just me. Maybe it's my skills are not good enough for the smaller ones. But I used to think that ministers, all he did was speak for half an hour, shake a hand at the door. Usually our minister, um, you know, shook a hand at the door. And that was it. But we miss that actually leading God's church brings with it a real labor, a real work. And it's not just for ministers, we're Presbyterians, it's a co-leadership of elders. It's a co-leadership where it involves a board of management. It's a co-leadership that involves our small group leaders, where it is really a labor of love for a small group leader to plan ahead, message the group, plan studies and say we're going to meet on this night and it's cold and it's bendigo and it's dark and then to arrive and you know maybe you get sort of half a group interested and that's what it's hard work it's a labor of love it's emotionally hard work elders ministers pastors we spend hard work studying the scriptures I put in a good full one or two days a week just studying the scriptures and people might think, well, you're wasting your time. I thought you just knew the Bible. You never just know the Bible. You never plumb the depths and say, well, I've got it covered now. The reason I do that is because I want to handle 2 Timothy 2.15, the Bible, rightly. I want to handle it rightly so that I'm actually teaching it rightly so that you're getting Christ and not something else. But here's Paul's point as he writes this. Leaders of the church are really under-shepherds. Notice they're over you and the Lord. Look at the text there, over you and the Lord. If you have healthy leadership, they understand the church doesn't belong to them. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. I lead with the expectation that in every moment, Christ is in every conversation. Christ is watching what I do behind closed doors. He's watching my prayer life because he's listening. He's watching my life with my family, my godliness, my holiness. He's watching how I lead you because you belong to him. Which means the authority of leadership is actually borrowed authority. It's his authority that I simply have for a temporary period of time to serve you like Jesus does. A couple of places you could go to to think about leadership in the church is Hebrews. And it's an easy place to remember because it's Hebrews 13 verse 7 and Hebrews 13 verse 17. So it's 7 and 17. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, Remember your leaders who spoke to the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then verse 17. And this is one that's often not preached. It's not said out loud because even leaders go, really? It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as someone, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for there will be no advantage to you. I know that I watch over your life, your soul. The word soul can mean life in the New Testament because it matters to me, are you ready for Christ's return? That matters to me most. It doesn't matter to me the numbers. It doesn't matter to me the style, the reputation. We're always going to have a bad reputation. But what matters most to me is, are the people that call Reforming Home ready for Christ's return? Because that's what Jesus is going to ask me. Did you get them ready? Did you help them to be humble, not proud, not grumbling, but joyful, thankful, rather than tearing down? Did you get them ready? to be like me. 
And that's why pastors are given this responsibility to admonish people. Admonish means to warn with love. Folks, can I just say this point? You get that this is not what Russ says, right? This is not what Russ says. This is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus says. And Reforming Church, you know this because you know that I'm an under-shepherd under Jesus, but also in what I think is actually a helpful part of our system, I am an under-shepherd. I have authority over me. Our co-elders, we make decisions together. I am one vote at a table of four. When I chair the board of management, I don't even make those financial or facility decisions because I just chair it. I only have a a casting vote, not a deliberative vote. The Presbyterian Church has worked hard to make sure that, that power and authority is actually shared, if not divulged away from one person, recognizing that Jesus is the Lord and King. Not only that, but you remember last year, it was August 21st, I don't expect you to remember the date, but August 21st, you got an email that said, Russ has been put on compassionate leave for four weeks. That was given to me, that was, that was a, a, an order from Presbytery, who are my boss. My boss is 12 people. You might have a boss that's one person at work. I've got a boss, they're 12, which means they have votes at a table. They make 12 decisions together about me and my, my employer is 12 people. And those 12 people as a presbytery sit under an assembly, which is the General Assembly of Victoria, which met last week for three days straight on Zoom. That was a fun time because I don't like Zoom that much, but I like the General Assembly of Victoria. And then the General Assembly of Victoria sits in the General Assembly of Australia. My point is this. Healthy authority has healthy accountability, but most of all, that accountability is not just human, it is God himself, it's Christ Jesus. Which means healthy leadership in a church, healthy church culture of healthy leadership is a culture of Christ and it's not a cult. Last week I mentioned, particularly in the evening service actually, I got a phone call. Actually, in fact, I got two phone calls in one day. And I'm going to mention this today in the live stream because I've actually found out from the General Assembly of Victoria, a lot of other ministers in our denomination got the same phone call, which means potentially a lot of people in our congregations are getting this phone call. I don't know how they got my number, but, well, my number's out there, I guess, but I got a phone call in the morning on, a, on, a, on a, my day off on a Friday lovely young woman it sounded like and she said our church is going to host a big uh, bible study prayer meeting you know the times we live in etc and we want to know if you want to join it i said Garrett, what's the name of your church and she said new heaven and new earth and just sort of something clicked in my head about that name and i was like oh. i said look i'm driving at the moment we were we were driving um to go on a picnic you know with our family i said and i, I said i'll call you back or something and amy said yeah, she wasn't sure but we kept going, I forgot about it. I got another phone call that afternoon. Again, a different, sounded like a young woman, very nice voice saying, we're going to host a big uh, kind of nationwide Bible study, prayer time. Who wouldn't want to be involved in that? Bible and prayer. Um, it's new heaven, new earth. And so I said, can I just can I talk about that? Because I had her on speakerphone. I got on my phone. I Googled. It's not hard to do. New heaven, new earth. It's a very famous South Korean cult. And famously, in Melbourne, they've been very active and they go to churches recruiting Christians by saying, come and join our Bible study, come and join our prayer time. And Christians, oh, sure, who wants to study the Bible and prayer? Sure, I'll do that. If I could do it every day of my life, I wouldn't. So they go along and then sooner or later, you find out 
you have to obey everything and you're in a cult and you didn't know it. Friends, if you get a phone call like that, I suggest you just say what I said. I said, I've just found out you're a cult. Um, it's on Wikipedia. And she said, oh yes, there's a, there's a, there's a rumour about that. And I said, no, it's, it's, I think this is genuine. Right? I said, I'm just going to politely decline. And she said, thank you. And that was it. Just politely decline. What's the difference between a cult and a healthy church culture? Here's the difference. A cult is where you belong to the leader. Like, you're theirs. A church, you don't belong to me. I don't own you. You belong to Jesus. And my job is a temporary steward to help you trust in and live for Jesus. Which means you can disagree with me and that's okay. But my anxiety and leadership, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he has anxiety for the churches. My anxiety is always how are you going and living for Jesus? That's what I care about most. For leadership is love. If you could define leadership, that's what it is. God is love. And if God is the ultimate leader, what is leadership? Leadership is love, like Jesus. Leadership is not about lording it over people. It is not about having my way or your way. It's having Jesus' way. Leadership is loving like Jesus. And how does Jesus have his way? By laying his life down for others. Leadership is sacrificial love. You want to lead people? Can I encourage every parachurch organisation in Australia right now that doesn't shepherd people but posts a lot on the internet... Here's what I've noticed. There's a lot of parachurch organisations with leaders that I respect at times posting on the internet, they're not your pastor, they're not your shepherd, and all they do is feed on the fear and the division and post on the internet with all sorts of things, and they don't have to make any decision for you on how we go forward, but they post stuff, and you know what it does? It stirs up anger amongst Christians. Now, last time I checked the scriptures, what does Jesus say? And stir up one another towards anger and frustration. Is that what Jesus says? Oh, no. He says, stir up one another to love and good works. So why do we have multiple Christian organizations stirring us up towards anger and division? Friends, respect them. You belong to Jesus. And so I'm praying that you would love and stir one another toward, stir one another towards love. That's what we need. And as we do so, we'll be at peace among ourselves. Look at the end of verse 13. Friends, this is not a recommendation. Jesus is not saying, you know, I recommend you be at peace. He's saying, it's a command. It's an imperative. Literally, and I checked out the Greek text, be at peace is a command among yourselves. You know what makes me sad these days? It's not whatever the government is or isn't doing. That's not what makes me sad. What makes me sad is this is the biggest test of is the church going to be like Christ and sometimes I see us failing. And one of the things is we're not at peace among ourselves. Why aren't we at peace among ourselves? Because we're not at peace within ourselves. 
We're not facing it with a calmness in Christ that says, actually, Jesus is still sovereign here. He's still in control and he's gracious and I can be therefore gracious too. Instead of stirring up one another to love, we stir up one another to anger and frustration and all sorts of things and it does not lead to peace within us nor peace among us. And as a leader, I I feel like... Am I not preaching Christ clearly enough? Are we not hearing love? I'm going to keep praying that I do, but that's, that's my job. It's my joy. Because I want us to see us ministering to one another with love, being at peace. This is the second thing we see, verses 14 to 15. And we urge you, brothers, verse 14, and there's a list of imperatives there. This is the shape of love. This is what it looks like in a church. Looking to one another, to minister to one another. Not looking to one another with suspicion of one another. Not looking to one another with anger towards one another, but with love towards one another, so that we would follow these commands and be Christ-like. These commands actually are all under the command to love God and love others. All of them. Look at the first one. Admonish the idol. All these are imperatives. Every single one is an imperative in the Greek text. It's a command. You are to admonish, that is, warn the idol. Why the idol? Because sometimes some of us do get idle. And 2 Thessalonians speaks about the problem of being idle. Go to the second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 11. Look at verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, look at that, command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you receive from us. Go to verse 11. For we hear that some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. There is so much that could fill our days with the work of love, loving your neighbour at work, do you know that serving in your job is actually a prime way God has designed that you would love your neighbour? Do you draw up plans for companies to build things? You're loving your neighbour. Do you teach in a school? You're loving your neighbour. Do you serve in some sort of voluntary capacity in an organisation or a church? Do you even speak to your neighbour over the fence? All of it is work. Doing the dishes is loving your neighbour. Going to the shops is loving your neighbour. Thanking someone who serves in the community in a difficult time is loving your neighbour. So when the idol need a warning, it's like, are you actually going around stirring up trouble and being a busybody or are you going around stirring up love and loving your neighbour? Warn the idol, admonish them. Secondly, encourage the faint-hearted. We all need this encouragement. We are living in discouraging times. The way to encourage people is not to discourage them more, but to encourage them. We've seen this in 1 Thessalonians. So in 1 Thessalonians, we saw this in chapter 4, at the end of chapter 4. Paul writes this, Therefore encourage one another with these words. And then chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore encourage one another. And build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage. 
Friends, we are needing courage. So we need to encourage one another. And then thirdly, help the weak. The word help here I find interesting. It's actually literally hold on to them. Don't let the weak go. Help those who are weak by holding on to them to care for them. Of course, if they wish to leave, if they want to walk away from you, you help the weak by loving them. But if they're there asking for help, you hold on to them. You pray for them. And then we see be patient with them all. Friends, this is the last in Thessalonians today. You might be wondering what's next week. Here's the preview. Coming to a church near you. We are going to start a nine-week series leading up to Christmas in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, normally we preach through books of the Bible. You might be worried, or we're going to be, you know, is, is Russ setting the agenda? Well, here's the good news. God gives us the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's actually him setting the agenda. We're going to follow each fruit with a key text. Because what do we need right now? One of the fruits is patience. As Rory prayed in the pastoral prayer, we need patience. We need to wait on the Lord. I see an impatience that turns to grumbling, which turns to anxiety, which turns to anger, which turns to all sorts of things that is not the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus says, there's a whole list of things, nine fruits that we could be producing in our life. And being patient with with all is so important. This is why I think biblical counselling requires wisdom and is best undertaken in the church. It's hard to know how to be patient with people if you're not in a church counselling them, if you don't know them. Biblical counselling works in the context of community where you learn patience, where you produce the fruit of patience by being patient with them all. Notice the all. The plurality of this text is actually profound at the end. This is for the local church, being patient with them all. See that no one in your church repays evil for evil. There were intense pressures on the young Thessalonian church, like really intense. We've got pressure today, but they had persecution. Their leaders, Paul and Silas, who initially planted the church, the church planners, were kicked out of town. They had persecution type of pressure. And yet, what is the message for a church under pressure? Do not repay evil for evil. But seek to do good to one another in the church and then to everyone. Friends, have you been tempted to repay evil for evil? To think, I'll get away with this because it's okay to lie? Because... Someone's done this or some organisation's done No, it's not okay. It's never okay. There is never an ethical argument that you could draw up to say it's okay to repay evil for evil. We saw this earlier in the year. Peter writes, because when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, here's my concern. Our saltiness in the world, our light in the world, will be drowned out if we keep banging on about how bad the government is. 
Governments are not perfect. We always knew there are bad people in government. We knew that. Paul knew this when he wrote this letter. But hear me. If we keep banging on about how those people over there need to hear this and the Premier's so bad and the government's so bad and they never hear why I need the gospel of grace, why my heart needs it, how is Jesus working in me, you know what they hear? Hypocrisy. That's what they hear. That's what Pharisees do. Pharisees, the problem is always someone else over there. The sinners and tax collectors over there. And we never talk about how the gospel affects me. I've preached sermons where I'm talking about our personal holiness and having conversations with people during the week and they say, yeah, that's why Daniel Andrews needs this. No, what about you? What about me? Where does the gospel work in me? Sorry, I'm a little bit passionate about this, but if we keep banging on and our, all people keep hearing us say is why those people are bad over there, we cease to be a compelling community. We cease to be any different to the world. And instead, God is showing us something extraordinary that is out of this world. We can actually do something distinctive by loving in return, seeking to do good. Because people are going to notice that and go, hang on a minute, that's different. Everyone else complains, but you don't complain. Instead, you have joy and you do this other thing called praying because you're not anxious. You're trusting. That's compelling, friends. We can put on the evangelistic course that Christianity Explored design. We could get Rico Tice himself here in the room. We could get the, the evangelist that's famous around the world and come along and it will make a lick of no difference if we're not loving our community and seeking to do good. Friends, if you find that hard to do, and I find that hard to do, can I be honest with you? I'm always honest with you. I find it hard to do. Here's what helps me. Listen to Jesus. Seriously. I think the reason we're like this is because we're, just, we've, we're not listening to Jesus. We're not filling our minds in the mornings, um, our afternoons, relaxing, just opening a Bible. We spend more time doom scrolling and getting stirred up by what people are posting on the internet than we do by God scrolling and reading his word. Social media, YouTube, is preaching at you at a rate of a million knots a minute. And Jesus is saying, listen to me. Listen to love. If you find it hard to do, here's a simple thing. It helps me. Try this today. Replace grumbling with praying. Every time you feel tempted to grumble about someone or something, pray about it. It really does change things. It changes where you put your trust, your hope of expectation of change. Does grumbling change anything? Last time I checked, uh, no. But you can pray to the one who works through prayer. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah prayed, that's what James says. Elijah knew what it was like to grumble even against the government. And yet he found there was no power in grumbling or whining. There was more power in praying. 
And we're empowered to do this, thirdly, friends, with genuine joy, like real joy. Verse 16, I love these little imperatives. It's like a list. It's almost creedal. I love the creeds and the scriptures. Rejoice always. Command. Pray without ceasing. Command. Give thanks in. Not just the happy circumstances of 2019 and before that, but now give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Christian joy, friends, joy in Christ is so distinct, it is so different than happiness of the world. See, the emotions of the world are dependent upon things going well for you. But those in Christ can have something that I've, I've passed to people through. I say, you can actually have, it's, it's called joy and sorrow. It's what life was like for these persecuted Thessalonians. Because of God's love for us in Christ, when in difficulty and distress, we can rejoice. Look, this has been God's testimony of God's people throughout the generations. You can see this throughout the scriptures, right? Um, joy and sorrow of what it is to say God's got this, of what it is to, to, to not just have the emotion of happiness because things are going well, but to say, I can actually trust in the Lord. If you go back to Habakkuk chapter 3, if I can get my Bible page open, oh, two pages stuck together. Oh, the dilemma. All right. Habakkuk 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, sounds bleak, nor fruit on the vines that produce olive, that fail, the, the, the fields yield no food, the flock are cut off from the fold, there's no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread the high places, yet I will rejoice. You see, if you're going to seek for joy, you're going to seek happiness itself. Pursuing happiness is like pursuing a phantom. But to seek Christ will bring you joy. Rejoice always, even in sufferings. Pray without ceasing. Prayer, by the way, praying is, you don't pray to look religious. I notice this. You can tell when someone's just being religious because they treat prayer as something I can only do when things are going well for me. Prayer is not what you do to look religious in front of other people. Prayer is what you do to be reliant on God in everything. And as we look to our Father in heaven, it's Paul who says later in verse 25, brothers, pray for us. Can I ask you for this? I know we ask, we talk about, you know, um, giving for gospel ministry so that church can serve in gospel ministry, and that's important, and it is important. We talk about it each week. Maybe we should talk more about, can you just pray for my preaching? Not because it's about me, not so that I preach well. I, I, you know, I don't want to even care about that myself. I don't want to preach well. This is, this is not like the Olympics, right, where I get a 7 or a 9 out of 10 for preaching. You know, well done, good job. Like that's what Jesus was after, just for preachers to preach well and then the theatre works. It's not, it's not what we need. It's not theatre. Can I ask you that you would pray 
from my preaching that I would preach Christ so that he is seen, God's word is heard, and our hearts are moved. Pray that we're not wasting our time here. Pray that God would work in us. And rejoicing and prayer are like, as Forrest Gump says, two peas in a pod. Rejoicing and prayer go together. When we started in this pandemic in March 2020, we met out there as a church in the car park. It was our last service for a while. And I preached from Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoicing and prayer go together. You can tell someone's rejoicing life by their prayer life. You can tell if someone's giving thanks in all circumstances. How do you give thanks in all circumstances when circumstances are hard, if not overwhelming, if not taking us to the depths of despair and despairing itself? How can you give thanks in all circumstances? By seeing that all circumstances help us to rely on Christ all the more. Whatever the government does or doesn't do over the next few weeks, whatever churches are told to do or not to do, whatever happens this summer, whatever happens next year, is not a cause for us for more grumbling. It is a cause for us to give thanks in all circumstances that we get to rely on Christ more. Because that is good for us. Friends, Church, if you know me in the last two years, you know that I've been through that myself. I know we're not allowed to know the details and all that sort of thing, but there's been really, really despairing things in my life. It's affected my mental health, but my spiritual health, I think, has grown. Because I've had to give thanks in all circumstances and rely on Christ more, and that can only be good, and that can only lead to rejoicing like joy in sorrow kind of rejoicing. And this is what God does in us. Paul talks about, do not quench the spirit. I think we quench the spirit, verse 19, when we don't listen to the spirit's word in scripture. Do not despise prophecies. What does that mean? Well, we've got a whole series. You can go on our sermon library on our website to see about that. But in short, Prophecy, preaching is this kind of monologue. Prophecy is like a Bible study, a discussion based on God's word. We're speaking God's word to one another, and we ought not despise that. We test it, yes, and discuss it and see what's, is that really what the text says? But we hold fast to what is good. Actually hold on to it. You're going to need to hold on to God's word more and not grumble more as the season progresses. And this is where Paul finishes his letter today. Because he says in the benediction, and this is our conclusion for today, this benediction we have said to one another for 11 weeks. We have said this benediction, it's been in our service, the last words of 1 Thessalonians, this prayer, there are three prayers, one at the beginning, one in the middle, one at the end. We've said this every single week. And really what this benediction says in verse 23, it's a prayer saying this, now may God do this among us. The church matters now more than ever. It's the most important organisation on the planet. But it matters more than ever that we have a reforming church culture that is like Christ, especially in a pandemic.
We've said this so many times before, but friends, if God can use the cross to save us, could he not use COVID in sanctifying us, making us more like Christ, making us more dependent on Christ? Could we even give thanks in all circumstances for that? If you're exploring Christ, you're looking into the church, that is the body of Christ, you'll see this, I'm sure. The church has faults and failings, doesn't it? You're looking at one of them. The faults and failings have names like Russ Grinter, like Rory Waitman. People are volunteering for their names to be read out. We won't go that far. (laughs) Because you know, don't you? We're all at fault. We're all failings. Yet see this. The church is God's people, the weak ones that he picks for his team. If we were getting on a train, it'd be like God is saying, all aboard, all are welcome. Christ gave himself up for the church to say we're all welcome, we're loved by God. So if you're looking into the church thinking, is this for me? See that Jesus says to you, I want you on this team. You're for me. Because I gave my life for you, he says. And if you belong to the church, you belong to Christ, not a cult. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to me. I have the privilege and anxiety of temporarily shepherding you with my co-leaders, co-elders and others. But friends, this benediction is where God works among us. The church is designed by Jesus for our sanctification. It's very tempting in times like this just to leave it. But you will grow less as a Christian without her. It's very tempting at times just to diss it. We'll have to make decisions you might disagree with. Can I encourage you not to just to diss them or grumble at them? Any decisions we make as leaders, I can assure you, we started thinking about them at least six months ago. And we didn't even know all the facts then. But the church is not perfect, but it will be perfected by Christ. See these words of the benediction, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I want you to notice something about that. The words are plural. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you. It's not you as an individual. It's not you, Rory Waitman. It's not you, Russ Grinter. It is, and if I could use an Australian term, it's yous. It's plural. If we were to have an Australian translation of the Bible, this is how you would read the benediction. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify yous completely and make yous, whole bodies, soul and spirit, be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls yous is faithful. He will surely do it. This is for us. All of us. This is for us to be ready for Christ's return, to be ready by reforming to be more like Christ. And this is where we finish. I'm going to let the Lord God have the last word. Verse 28. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus who laid his life down at the cross to save the church, to save us, the people in this room tuning online who we would say use. And so we're asking you to sanctify us completely. May our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless and ready for the return of Christ. We're so grateful that you who call us are faithful, that you will surely do it. In Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen.